everybody welcome back to comics school hopefully you are doing well all things considered uh hopefully you're you're safe and healthy and and warm and we are thrilled that you're with us also thrilled to be joined today by <laughs> one of my favorite scholars um but this is the first time we've actually been able to to talk and so i'm very excited and um a little i think a little twitter pated as it were um but welcome to the to the podcast uh anna papard nice to nice to talk with you nice to see you um in person nice to hear you yeah thanks so much for having me yeah sure. I think we've been facebook friends for a little while so nice to virtually meet you right um and just by way of of uh, of introduction, um, Anna Papard um, is the author of Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero with Chris Richardson, um, uh, a social science and humanities research candidate, uh, research council of Canada postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Communication, Popular Culture, and Film at Brock University, published widely on representations of race, gender, sexuality within a variety of popular media genres and forms including action adventure television superhero comics wrestling sports culture um currently working on a on a monograph about the 1960s spy show the man from uncle and uh, and, and writing entirely too much x-men fan fiction <laughs> uh and we were just talking about the A team, so there's lots of interest. There's lots of interesting directions this could go, from the A team to Nightcrawler, um, to sexuality and gender. And we start usually on the on the show by asking about your origin story. Every good every good superhero starts with an origin story. So how did you how did you come into into comics how did how did they become a part of your life how how and why have you kept um have you kept that front and center in the stuff that you in the stuff that you do yeah i've answered this question before and i feel like i answer it a little bit differently every time i wanted to be into comics when i was younger Mm -hmm. but there's just I don't want to say that it's purely a gender thing because it's probably an access thing too. I mean, where mm-hmm. I grew up, there just wasn't a comic book store and that kind of thing. But I mean, it was also sort of a function of you're just not given comics, you know, like as a girl right. growing up, it just wasn't a thing. So it's like I had a few comics, which I remember my mother taking me to a comic book store for the first time. And it's funny that it was my mother that took me and not my father. My mother is an artist and she has like a little bit of a fondness for comic book art. So she took me to my first comic book store maybe when I was about 12, and my interest stemmed from the television show Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, of which I was an obsessive fan at 12. Yes! So I was looking for Superman comics. I thought that was going to be my entry point, Mm -hmm. but that was kind of the era of, like, mullet Superman and the post-Superman's death and everything. It wasn't a good time. (laughs) (laughs) Was was that... That was... (laughs) Pre wait, well, that was that was black. It was black suit, but it was before he turned into a lightning bolt. I think is that or just honestly, I don't have the because I mean I know that they got married in the comics at the same time that they got married in the show. But I think when the show was still on, that would have been when right. he like before they got married in the show. That would have been when he was dead. And yeah, it was going through all right. the different it, versions. So, of the synergy, and right? <laughs> so yeah, I remember being very confused by that. <laughs> <laughs> that right. sort of propelled me from comics in a number of ways. But it was also, you know, you had a lot of the extreme 90s art going on at that time, too. Like, I have this definite memory. It's funny because I'm so into X-Men now, right. but I have this definite memory of being eight or nine years old mm-hmm. and at one of those, like, Pizza Hut X-Men birthday parties where they had, like, the comics and everything that came with it and all the X-Men-themed stuff and just the hypersexualization of the female characters in that kind of style of art that they were promoting at that time Mm -hmm. was a huge turnoff for my eight, nine year old self. I was like, this has, this seems inappropriate and is not 
targeted at me. Like I remember like Twittering with my friends about yeah. like Storm had that costume with kind of the X's not quite on her breasts at that right. point, the white costume. Right. And, and yeah, it just like sort of that was definitely a turn off for like, me. And um they in were retrospect, I have kind of a fondness for the excesses of that art, but as like again, like a nine year old girl, it definitely wasn't up my street. <laughs> A lot a, that was aggressive in almost every possible form in the nineties. Um, I was just, um, I was actually just looking back through my back catalog and I, I ran into one of the old pizza hut. Um, <laughs> like it's so interesting cause they spun it as like limited edition collectors. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay. I mean, that's, that's neat, but it's also a pizza hut commercial, but mm-hmm. okay. Um, is, when well, you I guess think, I, I, no, should, no, I should finish. I should finish my origin story. I guess yeah, I so. didn't actually get to the point where I actually started reading comics. <laughs> but I got, I got really into sort of weekly comics, current comics when um, torrents were kind of like a thing. So sure. the guy I was dating at the time downloaded all of Marvel's Civil War when it was still current, and I remember it took nice. days to download all of it because that was our internet then. <laughs> And I got really into it. I read, like, all of it, like, every single tie-in to Civil War, got to know the Marvel Universe really well, just got so invested in that interconnected universe, which wasn't something that I'd been able to enjoy with comics previous to that, because, you know, sort of the scatter of issues that I had. I never had complete storylines or anything like that. And it's definitely always been a draw. I mean, I said that my entry point was Lois and Clark, so it's always been a draw for me. And this is funny because I think it's counterintuitive to some people. And I just talked mm-hmm. about the hypersexualization mm-hmm. and the, you know, the sexism of superhero comics too. But the depictions of men in superhero comics has always been a huge draw to me. I mean, I remember being in love with Spider-Man when I was younger, even just from the old sixties cartoon, the like mm-hmm. Stanley narrated one. The, the one, the pointing one for those of you who are mm-hmm. the, 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 the millennials among you who, doing the Spider-Man gif, that's what we're talking Mm -hmm. about. But it's just that there's something so appealing to me about the ways that, again, despite all this sexism, despite all this, like, gender dimorphism and things that the superhero genre definitely does and the ways that it's, like, pushed me away a lot of times because of that, you have these depictions of thoughtful, sensitive men struggling with their identities. Mm -hmm. And that is very appealing to me as a female reader as a feminist reader and as sort of a woman who's always searching for space to kind of, you know, locate my female gaze in mainstream media. I mean, when I talk in the super sex book about Lois and Clark, how I talk about it being sort of formative for me are sort of the invitations that it makes to the female gaze through the character of Clark slash Superman in that show. Mm-hmm. And so that's something I'm always sort of looking for in, in superhero media, which sounds very, I don't know what, like, I kind of make the joke that I'm just kind of following a crush on every superhero boy and trying to make it academically <laughs> respectable. But, but to a certain extent, I think we, true, we all I think are also, in some, also, yeah. <laughs> in, in some permutation. I think that's true. I think that's true of all of us. Yeah. Um, and I mean, maybe I'm a little bit more honest about it, but like also, you know, these things are important, right? Cause if we're studying pop culture and we're right. studying desire and we're start, studying in effect, the politics of love and desire when we're studying pop culture. So if you're conscious of it sort of stemming from that, that you can sort of interrogate your own desires in conversation with that, which is something that I try to do in my work, which is often mm-hmm. very sort of personally focused as well. Is. And I want to, I want to make sure I ask the, the question, the, the way, the way that I want, which is a, <laughs> of course, um, when we think about the politics of desirability, and I think about how, when when I think about the depiction of superheroes over time, right? So we talked about, for instance, Spider-Man, Peter Parker, over time in the '60s through, you know, I'm just I just finished reading the most current issue. Um, with, when we think about the, poli- the politics of desirability and representation, um, how, how has that in some ways remained static and in other ways been more flexible or ha- has it been more adaptable to the contemporary culture in which it's in which it's situated. Does that make sense? Right. So like representation over time tends to have some, some through lines, but then it changes 
right over time how have you um how have you experienced it or how have you thought about um representation in terms of in terms of um gender and sexuality in in comics in particular if that makes well, that question well, make sense that, that makes sense i mean well, I mean, we'll see whether it makes sense based on how I answer. It, <laughs> yes, we will. Um, <laughs> we'll we'll see. We'll we'll, we'll give Mar- we'll we'll get work, Mark's work cut out for him. <laughs> but um, the way I would answer that is that it kind of speaks to why I think superhero comics and superhero stories more generally are a really valuable source for interrogating the politics of gender representation, because you can see how it's not a straight line. You don't have it sort of moving from hypersexist representation to a more positive representation sort of in a, I'm not doing the line right with my hand, but I guess the listeners can't see that anyway. I'm not, I'm not. Imagine the straight line, right. (laughs) But I mean, yeah, like it doesn't sort of move. I mean, it moves in curves, right? Like you see, you know, there is a lot of hypersexism during the world war two period of superhero comics. And yet you also have an emphasis on female superheroes and female strength. And there's a lot, a lot, a lot of male, female partner superheroes as well, in part because of the politics of gender around the war, trying to promote Mm -hmm. female patriotism and involvement Mm -hmm. in the war effort. And that's why in part that you get acceptability of a character like wonder woman. And yet you see after the war, you see that falling off. There was almost a total disappearance of female superheroes for like a decade and then you see sort of in the in the wake of second wave feminism, you see female superheroes starting to reappear again. And then by the late 70s, you see companies creating female superheroes specifically to resonate with feminism to try to draw in female readers. And then you see sort of like things get like sort of more conscious and more equal in some ways throughout the late 70s into the 80s. And then you see the rise of this extreme artwork that we've talked about, which does some things with interesting things with female characters to the extent that this is the rise of the bad girl, who's a very complicated female character, good and bad, complicated female character. But it's also an era in which companies really were not trying to market themselves to female readers in any substantial way. And so you have that happening, which in terms of I don't know what I want to call it in terms of gender equality, perhaps maybe sort of a backslide, but then you see sort of changes in the late nineties. Then you see changes in the early two thousands. And then you see kind of where we're at now, where you see the companies trying to appeal to a more diverse readership in some ways, still not doing that perfectly, but uh, there's definitely been a huge change in the last 10 years for sure. And, and I'm wondering, um, you know, I, I came up, um, in the you know in the eighties and in the air in in some ways in the era era of of excess in the nineties um, many pe- many shoulder pads and pockets mm-hmm. um, but I'm wondering uh, as you said you know it, there is a often a a cultural in some ways socio political tension right between it amongst those four, those modes of representation, right? Like it's not a straight line. So I'm, I'm curious how we get from the excesses of the nineties to some of the more, you know, some of the, the more interesting, I don't know if interesting is the right word, but how do we get to Kamala Khan, for example, or how do we get to, um, Kate Bishop, for example, um, and how are how how does how does that make sense given the history of of representation? I mean, it it feels it feels very organic, feels natural, but at the same time, I look back at some of the um, earlier representations. Um, as you said, we you know we look back at at some of the hypersexualization in in you know you said Storm for example or Psylocke or I'm just I'm just thinking of of X Men even Jean Grey to to a large extent. So how do how how does that how how do we get to that point in in comics where we've got a not only a space for that representation but Kamala Khan just as an example is got a TV show coming. She's centered in the the video game. Like that's a premiere. She's a premiere character. Well, uh, I mean, you can think about how different it is the way that some of these things have come about. But if we're going to just stick to talking about Marvel, sure. the way that some of these things have come about in the contemporary era versus you know how they came about in that late nineteen seventies period that I mentioned, where Marvel did have this push to create female superheroes that resonated with feminism. They created. Within, this, within a couple of years, you know, the original Ms. Marvel um, and 
She-Hulk and um, Spider-Woman as well. Mm -hmm. But all of those were rather cynical efforts. I mean, two of those characters were created to hang on to copyrights to the characters' names. All of those characters were created and drawn by men. Whereas you have a push now, and like it can seem like it just happened organically, and yet a lot of these things were the result of like intense fan pressure, agitation, yes. the growth yep. of sort of diverse fan communities on yep. the internet is a huge, huge, huge factor in why some of these changes have happened. You know, convincing Marvel that there's an audience for these characters, the way that people have actively organized in the case of the... So when Carol Danvers went from being Ms. Marvel to Captain Marvel, the very highly organized, highly motivated fan base for that title was a huge part of it. And also more diverse creators agitating for representation and fighting on behalf of these characters as well. I mean, you can't really overstate sort of the power of Kelly Sue DeConnick fighting for Carol Danvers and fighting to remake that character. And because she fought to remake that character, because the character resonated with people, that's part of why we get a foundation yes. for the creation of Kamala Khan, Ms. Marvel, yep. right? Who's there, who's in a metatextual commentary centrally inspired by Carol Danvers. Yep. <laughs> um, and, and that's such a good, uh, it, that's such an, an, an important point, right? Is that it comes through these, these, these changes come through intentional way, intentional uh, agitation, intentional, intentional organization. Int- like they are, they are explicitly done, right? Um, it's it is not inevitable, you know. I think it's like, well, of course, of course, it happened because it's now. It's like, well, when you dig deeper, when you push a little further beyond sort of those surface levels of, well, we have, you know, I'm looking at my giant size X Men number one, where they're just like bursting through the the page, like we've got one of everybody. It's, well, okay, sure. But when we look at how did how did Captain Marvel come how did Miss Marvel come to be, it is in some ways a different type of legacy, right? Kelly Sudakonic, Sana Aminat, um G. Willow Wilson, etc. Et um do you do you find that when um the subject of gender representation and sexuality um when that comes up, have people, whether it's in the Academy or even like on the floors of Comic Con, are people engaging? Are they, are they reticent? Are they, are they interested, but just don't know how? Um, what's the conversation been like um, for you in, in thinking about the, the ways in which these presentations work? Have people been interested in not not interested, but have they been eager to engage in discourse or, or listening or what's been the dynamic that's been developing for you? It really depends on which space that we're talking about. Sure, I mean, sure. I've been lucky, you know, fingers crossed, knock on wood, that I haven't experienced a ton of online harassment, but that's partly because I keep my online presence pretty like clamped down. I just joined Twitter like three months ago. So again, knock on wood. But at the same time, like, yeah, I've experienced the microaggressions in sure. academic spaces sure. and that kind of thing. And I've certainly had experiences of, it's a book that I'm really proud of. So I'm hesitant to tell the story in a way, but sure. the first book that my work appeared in was uh, in a book called Make Ours Marvel Media Convergence in a Comics Universe, which I think is a really great book and you should all check it out. It's um, excellent. <laughs> it really okay, is. Thanks, thanks. But I'm the only female contributor to that book. And I did not know that until the book was published. And my piece is the only piece that directly addresses feminism and histories of female representation. So when that book came out, I had this overwhelming sense of just like everybody else's essay in this collection is so celebratory and fun. And I'm here being the feminist killjoy Mm. because I had to because I'm the only woman here. Mm. And so I really resent being put into that role sometimes. There's definitely a sort of a case of tokenistic representation sometimes. And as anybody who's sort of, you know, a minority in their field, you have that fear a lot of the time. But I will say sort of in recent years, I've definitely seen a change. I mean, just as the superhero genre and the mainstream comics has been becoming more diverse, sort of 
the diversity of sort of voices and superhero scholarship has really been elevated and we've always been there it's just that we're getting sort of more of a chance to kind of talk and have a spotlight lately i find and that's true sort of of representations of queerness in comics blackness in comics um, women in comics <laughs> so, there's been a so i'm doing a little i'm doing a little dance yeah. i'm just i'm feeling it i'm feeling it um be and thankful really, that, that no one else could yeah. see that i'm sorry <laughs> But I've definitely really, really felt that as a scholar. Like, I don't want to, like, you know, say that things are still horrible because they've gotten so much better. But at the same time, when I was first starting to do this work 10 years ago, I definitely felt very alone and very isolated. Right. But Um, and and I guess that's one of the things that I think is so important. And one of the reasons I really appreciate your work. And, you know, those of you listening, you know, uh, please uh, continue. But after uh, fire up your Google machine and and hit that scholar.com. I was actually a little irritated because uh, and when am I supposed to read all of this stuff? Like I see all this stuff I'm like this is this is it. This is this is really brilliant, wonderful work. And as you said, it's been here and people are catching. I, I think a lot of folks are catching up mm-hmm. and and it's this it's this notion of not has it has it been you know, has it been, has it been hard? Cause yes, but, but the, I, I feel like in some ways where folks like, like us that, that kind of, that, that take our comics very seriously, um, that, that the, the time that, that, that I guess the circles have kind of aligned, right? So it's not only in from sort of this Scott McCloud, do respect, um, you know, analytic of how the comics work, but okay, well, how is it, how are we taking it, how are we taking this up as not only serious scholarly study, but not just from a uh, sort of a patriarchal perspective, a male gaze perspective, but there are, this is important because of what and how it, it represents and who, who is and isn't included. As you said, you've, you've seen, you've seen, things change um and i'm really grateful for your piece because it it shows that not only is there a space but it's not it it doesn't have to we don't have to engage in this sort of hagiography right like we can we can be critical a buddy of mine said we you know we can be critical of the things we love um and we should be and rightfully so um because it does matter because it is important um and so i i think uh that's uh one of the the reasons that I wanted to ask that question is is it's sort of that uh, it's kind of cool to be a nerd now to be to be on it like I there's lots of us comics scholars out there right um, and so it's like I've always wanted to talk to somebody about this but nobody's like let come here let me talk to you about this and then all of a sudden there's a round table and now there's a you know now there's a colloquium because. I think that there are spaces and that's one of the reasons that um, I, I was glad that you wanted to come on the show is, is there's more than one way to approach this. There must be more than one way to approach having these conversations. Um, so when you, when you are putting this book together um, and I don't want to say, is re- is female representation an issue? Because that's not the right question. But why is it so important for you that we continue to have these conversations about gender identity, sexuality in comics? Um, because it feels like, and I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll set this up for you. It feels like, I mean... We just had WandaVision, Monica Rambeau. We've got strong female characters. We've got, you know, Black Widow is going to be this big tent whenever it com- is allowed to come out. And that's just Marvel. You know, Wonder Woman, smash hit. Patty Jenkins is going to be doing uh, that new X-Wing movie, but did, you know, Wonder Woman in 84. Why is it important that we keep having these these conversations given the given where we are, given the progress that we've, that we've made? Well, I mean, the, the easy answer to that is just, you know, 
if we're going to be talking about equality, you know, how long has it taken us to get, you know, even, you know, the two major companies have each had one female superhero movie. Well, they've had two in Wonder Woman, but one major, you know, female superhero headliner. So that's not exactly, I mean, it's sort of like there's been an upswing in female representation in mainstream superhero comics too, but the numbers Doing are great, so guys! <laughs> it's like 12% of female characters leading books, something like that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like... It feels like a sea change given where we were before. <laughs> we have over seven hundred percent increase. Well, that, that means that you were doing terrible. <laughs> but I mean, the one division example is a really good example in terms of it relates to a lot of kind of what I do in sort of terms of the importance of recovering sort of a history of gender representations being more complex than people give them credit for in superhero comics, because people are looking at the show and being like, this is so revolutionary. It's so amazing that the superhero genre could do this. And yet two of the texts that that series is based on are the vision and the Scarlet Witch miniseries from the 1980s, which were series that were really mind blowing to me in terms of understanding that complex relationships about heterosexual yet not heteronormative relationships that existed in the superhero genre and that you had this sort of radical fusion of romance and superheroics in both of those series. And honestly, they were sort of key in terms of making me feel like there was space for me within this genre. And that was comics from decades and decades ago, right? Mm-hmm. So understanding that there is this history of these comics and that it isn't all of these sort of generic sexist comics that you're led to understand the superhero genre only comprises, that's important too. And so sort of recovering the fact that there have always been these different superhero comics, the superhero comics haven't always been this one singular thing is important to the work that I do. And, you know, understanding where a show like WandaVision kind of fits in history. And it's not that the WandaVision show isn't doing things differently than those comics from the 80s. I think it's doing, it did a lot better with Wanda's character than kind of she's been done in most comics in terms of emphasizing her complexity and subjectivity. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, again, like emphasizing that this is a history that isn't this straight line towards a certain ideal of progress that there's been a push push and pull about these stories over all of these years. And it's, it's interesting because there is, and and just to look at, for instance, WandaVision, um, which is the most, you know, the most recent um, example, although the, the new, the new, uh, the new show Falcon and uh, Winter Soldier drops, I think tomorrow, Day after tomorrow, Thursday, Friday. Um, but with 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 Wanda, I thought it was really interesting in terms of situating her in the history of pop culture, but then also in the history of comics, because I really thought they were going to go full on House of M, which yeah. always, you know, and I'm going to break a lot of hearts here, always bugged me because of the sort of hysterical trope, right? This like hysterical woman breaks and it's fragile, the fragility and this like that it always bugged me in, in house of M from that perspective. Um, And I wonder what your thought was in terms of um, how they um, did and didn't handle some of the, some of that, conversation in, in that show or even in in the house of m m comics um with regard to trying to to trying to tell a story about healing and grieving um and doing some things you know some things really really well and then you know there's room for there's room for critique as well i mean the huge difference between house of m and wandavision is that wandavision is told from wanda's perspective and house of m is not I mean, she's a she's a sub she's an object of the story and not a subject of the story in House of M, so that's like a huge difference right away because the dip there is an inherent problem with telling the story about the woman who has too much power and is driven hysterical and mad because of that, and especially in Wanda's case, that the catalyst for her losing control of her powers is the resurgence of repressed memories of her vanished twins who are shards of Mephisto's soul. So you have her driven crazy in a specifically feminine way where it has to do with reproduction and Mm -hmm. it's bad on a lot of levels just that way. But I mean, also you could have told that story. I mean, it's sort of like, it's different, but related that when we talk about how problematic it is, how many female superheroes have been victims of sexual assault in comics, it's not that you can't tell an interesting and important story about sexual assault. 
it's sort of the way that the story is handled. And when we talk about the convention of fridging, the mm-hmm. way that that's problematic is that the story in the convention of fridging is about the female character suffering for the emotional journey of the male character. Right. I would argue that's very much the case in House of M. What happens to Wanda happens so that certain prominent male characters in that story can have character growth and development. And it's not, it's just not a story that's about Wanda's subjectivity. (laughs) And it's, it's such an interesting, it's, it's such an interesting point. And I always get, I wish the, the image that didn't come to mind when talking about um, the, (laughs) <laughs> that story, not what House of M, but I'm thinking of the of Wanda's arc is the the shards of Mephisto, where it's just like the two arms that are also babies, yeah, the, like, the baby arms. Pop, pop I was it, like, pop it, pop it, baby yeah, hands, I was like, arms, you yeah. know, I could have gone my whole life without that. Uh, mm-hmm. Yet here we are. Um, Thank you, John Byrne. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Shouts out. Thank you for my nightmares. Um, <laughs> but I think. Um, I think that's interesting in that um, how stories are told really, really matters. Um, and, and of course, that's going to come as no surprise, but this, the idea of, for instance, the difference between WandaVision and, and House of M, um, you know, is in some ways how, who's writing this story and how. Um, so, for instance, who's in the writer's room for WandaVision? How are they? And I, I read a, and I'm, I'm forgetting, I think it was in the, Variety or, or the, the New Yorker, but somebody specifically, the the head writer, um, a woman was was specifically trying to. She's written for Black Widow and for um, for WandaVision. Was specifically trying to avoid toxic tropes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that is something that other folks may may not be attuned to and that can make the difference so i'm thinking in terms of g willow wilson writing miss marvel that story is 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 going to be um is going to be highlighting and telling a story from particular perspectives solid and uh, uh, ahmed does a, a great job um in the follow-up in magnificent miss marvel um and so you know i'm I'm particularly interested, you know, when, when you when we talk about um, the current folks in the writers' room, um, and and I'm thinking about folks like, for instance, Louise Simonson, right, who have been there. So there's a legacy of of female representation of female, right? Mary Jo Duffy, for example. Um, well, I and, recently profiled Anna Senti for Comfort Food Comics. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, exactly. Anna Senti, right? Like these are, and, and these, this isn't, this isn't like, you know, th- these are. This is high profile. This is this is a high profile folks making decisions in the editorial room, um, in the writers' room, um, and I think that um, it feels like ru- improvement has been made. However lots of work to continue to be to be done and i think that's why i uh, i think for instance uh, everybody should go pick up your book because the conversation is ongoing uh, there's no there's no prize we don't win we keep pushing forward and that's why i think your your work is is really really important do you think that and we're going to shift gears and you might even be able to kind of hear it like do you think that that's what draws you in some ways to Nightcrawler and X-Men, this idea of thinking about belonging, thinking about how people represent or are represented and think about others. What, what, about, what about the X-Men has had a particular draw for you? Is, is there an overlap or are they two kind of different threads for you? No, I mean, if we're going to talk about the history of representation in superhero comics, X-Men is always going to be at the center of that conversation, and X-Men comics are well represented in the super sex book. I mean, one thing I will just say, just as a point of emphasis, that we've been talking a lot about female superheroes, but definitely one of the main things that we wanted to do in the super sex book is make sure that when we're talking about gender and sexuality, we're not thinking that that means only women. We talk about men and women and diverse sexualities and diverse bodies and diverse Absolutely in the book as well and that's sort of one of the things that's important because a lot of times when we're talking about gender representation the superhero 
genre, it becomes a little bit like when you're taking a gender studies class and that right. just means women's studies. So right. it's very much about gender and sexuality in a broad sense. Which is, which is why I wanted to, uh, beautiful, because that's exactly, when you think about the, when you think about X-Men, it explodes that, uh, it disrupts mm-hmm. that binary notion. Mm-hmm. Um, even with binary, who's Captain Marvel, Let's mm-hmm. call back. Uh, mm-hmm. Sorry, everyone. Um, <laughs> but I, but that's what I wondered is 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 when we think about those the, these issues, which again we've we've made a, I think a really good case that they they do matter. They are important historically, mm-hmm. socially, politically. Um, how does the how do do the X Men as a their own genre? Like they're almost their own subgenre in comics. The X books. How have they helped with or, or how have they mapped out in your work, right? Like, as you said, there's um, a variety, like a variety of, of identity and sexuality and gender and, and, and types of folks. Um, how has that, Im- how, how has that aligned with your work? I mean, the mutant metaphor in Marvel Comics does extend from the core Marvel brand in a lot of direct ways. I mean, it's not that different from Spider-Man being the persecuted outsider teenager figure from, you know, that he was on, you know, <laughs> page one of Amazing <laughs> Fantasy, right? Well, not page one, but, you know, as soon as he becomes Yeah, Spider-Man. like real early on, it's like, nerds, oh Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, X-Men extends very directly from that, but they have sort of, the second gen and i mean you know x-men had this originally too but it doesn't sort of come into its own until it gets re-envisioned um, right. in 1975 as the all new all different x-men yep. and giant size x-men number one and we yep. have diversity kind of brought in as more of a direct metaphor so i mean having this more diverse team and having a direct link between sort of being a superhero and being a persecuted outsider opens up a lot of those conversations that were mm-hmm. already happening in not just marvel comics but a lot of different types of comics about the superhero's burden, the good and bad of being a superhero, what it means to be a superhero, what it means to have a radically right. transformed body. I right. mean, way back in, you know, I, it's a panel from X-Men number one that I often show in class, a panel of um, Warren Worthington binding his wings under his clothes to go out into the real world. He's got like the, the, like the, just like belts, right? They look mm-hmm. like extra belts and he's like ah that's better that that yeah and like what a disturbing and powerful image to like be binding your transformed Mm -hmm. mutant body in order to be accepted in the world and Mm -hmm. it's so wonderful right and like the original sort of run of x-men didn't sort of necessarily exploit that as well as it could have and that's why that title sort of fell into failure and yet it gets re-envisioned in ways that really bring some of those metaphors that had so much potential in that original envisioning more to the forefront. And yeah, I just as a space in which the superhero body is explicitly presented as unstable, as potentially mm-hmm. dangerous, always mm-hmm. a problem and a question, like both in terms of the nature of mutant powers, but also in terms of the way that the X-Men are treated by the public that opens the door for so many interesting conversations about super heroics and identity. And that kind of makes it such a focal point for, again, those discussions of representation in the superhero genre. Mm-hmm. Like Scott Bukatman writes about the mutant body as being sort of inherently tortured, right? Sort of inherently unstable, inherently almost frightening to the people that possess it. And so you can see again why this becomes such a powerful metaphor for so many different types of, of, of identity, but I don't want to single out any particular one. I mean, queerness gets associated with the X-Men very, very strongly, mm-hmm. but um, I think so many so many metaphors of difference can be mapped onto that. And it's and I think that it's one of the reasons it's such a rich metaphor. And you said something that uh, that I want to kind of circle back to this idea of the body as a problem, but mm-hmm. a problem for whom? And this idea mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. there is a d- mutants are naturally like this is as natural. Your wings are as natural as everything else, right? Um, there is a space. There there must be space. There must be room for you. There is. Um, and so this idea of like. Uh, uh, the 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 mutant as and I'm thinking for instance back to um, Kurt Busiek's uh, Marvels with Alex Ross and this idea of just like um, scary for whom mutant says yeah. scary for whom and how right um, and that's I think because of how ha- because of the the nature the the, the every every conceivable aspect of, of othering. Um, but also this, this, 
almost uh, I don't want to say puritanical because I think that maybe is too that maybe too charged. But this, your body's not a problem. Your body is not something to be scared of. Um, but that's been very centered, I think, in a lot of at least. Um, cont- uh, when I say contemporary in the last 60 years, but really since Jonathan Edwards and the <laughs> sinners in the hands of an angry guy is like, your body's a problem and you should be scared of it. And be scared of other things that you don't understand. So this is a long st- <laughs> long-standing problem mm-hmm. um, that tends to have religious overtones and social and, and political um, and, and gendered um, and gendered positions, especially in the last 40 years. And I wonder, um, I've always been fascinated by conversations that I've read in X-Men comics um, with, with Kurt and everybody else, <laughs> right? Because, mm-hmm. he, and, and, and by that, I mean, whether it's Kurt and Peter or Kurt and, Kurt and Logan or Kurt and Storm, like, what is it about that character and how he has been written that is, I don't know, I'm not even going to try and be tactful this question, just so great, right? Like, what about it is everybody wants to talk about Nightcrawler because everybody loves Nightcrawler. Everybody loves Kurt Wagner, whether it's, whether he's swinging around with a cutlass or like being like just super cool wise Sage, what, what, what do you think about, you know, all of the, you know, considering all the things we've been talking about, what is it about that character in particular that you gravitate towards and you think maybe other people gravitate towards? It's a huge question because it is, I'm sorry. <laughs> that I like about this character, but I mean, one of the central sort of jumping off points for me in terms of investing in that character was that you read to me very different from a lot of the other Marvel monster characters, especially sort of, back in the 70s when that character was still new, that usually the pattern for the Marvel monster superhero is to transform into a monster and then be ashamed of that monstrosity and having to kind of get used to it and sort of work with it. But, it, you know, the two the two prominent models are the thing in the Hulk, right? And the mm-hmm. Spider-Man to a certain extent, although mm-hmm. he doesn't have quite the level of graphic monstrosity that the thing in the Hulk do, he can still retreat into a human persona and not, and not suffer right. that same level of persecution. And, and we knew those six arms weren't going to last. Like, it's like, oh, he's a monster mm-hmm. for the next three issues. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> Whereas if he'd been an X-Men, they would have lasted, right? Right, exactly, exactly. But, um, but yeah, to just have this character who, and it's very important that unlike all of the other um, X-Men characters at that time, he was born with his graphic difference, mm. right? So he had always mm-hmm. been accustomed to that difference and his difference is normal to him. And so that creates a juxtaposition with a character like Beast who mutates into a Beast-like character later and so has a different relationship to his difference than a character mm-hmm. like Nightcrawler does. Mm. So in terms of him being emblematic of this second generation of X-Men characters, the second generation of mutants, I think that that does a lot of interesting things. And I don't think it's, there's problems with the character in the extent that the Nate, the fantastical nature of his difference means he can be appropriative of a lot of different identity categories. Yeah. Like he can represent racial difference. He can represent mm-hmm. disability. He can mm-hmm. represent queerness. Mm-hmm. And yet I'm always cautious about being like, it's not like he's a perfect character in that way, though, though sure. because that can be very appropriative. And, you know, having yeah. a conversation, if he's having a conversation with Storm, who embodies, like, a real racial difference mm-hmm. in terms of the superhero genre, which is so heavily white. Right. That, you know, him being, like, having the monopoly on difference can read as a little bit of a problem when he's having some of those conversations. Right. But at the same time, to have this character who has this graphic physical difference who has been persecuted his entire life for that mm-hmm. difference. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it gets back to that question that you said, right, of like, problem for whom? And it's not a problem for him. He loves his body. He loves mm-hmm. what it enables mm-hmm. him to do. He thinks mm-hmm. he's beautiful. He thinks he's wonderful. It's everybody else that has a problem. Right. And so it's not that he never experiences shame, but that shame is very much put upon him by the public and not something that he feels within himself. And that's something that I just love so much about the character. And, and I wonder if... Well, and and for me, it's not dissimilar to Spider-Man. And by that, I mean different generations, different populations, different groups of folks, different, you know, a, a, can all in their own way bring who they are to resonating with that character, 
right? Yes, we love to see him swinging from, like, I love the swashbuckling, like, amazing X-Men on a pirate ship wearing a hat. Like, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big swashbuckling, uh, swashbuckling fan, Kurt fan. But, but I, I think you are able to bring your own self to that character. Mm-hmm in your own way and you he's not changing who you are and you don't have to change who you are right you don't have to do in some ways you don't have to do some of the and and this this is just me literally thinking out loud but like you don't have to do some of that other cognitive work that you might have to do otherwise like well i'm not a giant green rage monster who when he's not angry is a brilliant white dude like there's not that like (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right it's like well i'm not a giant rock monster who kind of doesn't like himself um you know you use like oh yeah that's i can see myself in well, he's a very i can see myself behind well, behind those yellow eyes almost yeah but i mean part of it with this character too is just the ways that he's almost an inherently self-reflexive character yeah. as an outsider yeah. among outsiders yeah. and again having that different oh, experience yeah. of yeah. being born with the mutation sort of gives him that and he's a character that is very defined by like emotional intelligence and empathy as well partly stemming yes. from being an outsider among outsiders so you think of him in the space of the swashbuckler role on the pirate ship he's inhabiting you know yeah. a very stereotypical yeah. white male fantasy there and yeah. yet he's always going to be outside <laughs> of that fantasy even that's just true. because of his graphic representation that's so so that's like a way that that character becomes accessible because yeah. he is like us in that he will never be that person. You know, he can inhabit yeah. that role. He can play that role, but it's always obvious that he's playing a role. And I think that's part that's of where so the affection for the he, character comes in too. He is, he is this idea, like he embodies some of our, those similar experiences. Like I want to be, but I will never like, mm-hmm. there's always a part of me that's going to feel Un, feel different, mm-hmm. right across a variety of lines. Um, <laughs> um, then I guess the 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 last question as we um, as we wrap up here, um, where would you or how would you like to see comics in the next ten? 15 years where where how would you like to see the issues that we've talked about explored further um is that do you do you imagine that being more uh more representation on the pages of comic books or more people in the in the uh in the academy or both and um in an ideal world where are we in 10 years in talking about you know, if we're imagining a future, which is kind of what comics afford us the ability, the, the afford they invite us to do. Where do you, where do you want us to be ideally in a couple of few years when we're thinking about these issues? I think I will limit my answer to superhero comics just sure. because I don't want to be that guy that's being like comics are superhero <laughs> comics and the wider world of comics is so much bigger. No, fair enough. Fair, yeah, yeah, and, fair and enough. Even fair though enough. I have a particular affection for superheroes and that is where most right. of my comics work happens, right. I don't want to be that guy. No, no, I, I appreciate that for sure. So in superhero comics. One of the things that I have a really hard time answering for myself is what I want the future of superhero comics publishing to look like. And Mm. I think that really has a lot to do with how the fandom of superhero comics is going to work, how the consumption is going to work, how like the marketing is going to work, because you do see some suggestions of moving away from like the weekly monthly publishing model toward a different publishing model. They're doing so many digital sales now. They're doing so many trade sales now. And I'm not sure what I think would be better. I know that I am at this point frustrated a little bit with sort of the pace of weekly comics and, you know, what always happens in weekly comics with some issues just aren't that good. And you're paying $5 for that issue. And it can always be a frustrating experience to have to consume the story in that way too, you know, in these fragments. So I don't know what I kind of want from that. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of like diversity, I mean, more is always better. That's and that's the right. easy, that's sure. the easy sure. answer. Sure. But 
But in terms of what I specifically want to look like, that to look like, I have a lot of questions with myself about what I want sort of sexuality in the genre to look like. I know that I am excited about the current X-Men comics, and yet I still think they're not being as explicit with the queerness as they are suggesting and teasing a lot of queerness and not doing it in a way that like would make me a little bit happier. I'd be happy for superhero comics to be a bit less prudish about some aspects of more explicit sexual content that's not that I want them to become pornographic in a traditional sense, but just to become a little bit less prudish about displaying diverse bodies and diverse sexualities. Mm -hmm. You see some signs of them doing a little bit better, but I think we've got a long way to go. I feel like in my mind, I can imagine what I want the mainstream superhero genre to be. I don't know if it'll be that. And I don't even know if that's the right answer because lots of people want different things, but I'm curious to see where it goes. Well, it has absolutely been uh, a joy to to spend some time talking um where can people where can people pick up your book um do you have sh- social social shareables um mm-hmm. for people to people to to follow you yeah for sure i've got a couple of podcasts that people can check out i've got a podcast called three panel contrast which is a monthly look at comics classes which a couple with a couple of other very smart comic scholars and i have another podcast that just started if you're interested in the x-men stuff called oh gosh oh golly oh wow we are doing an issue by issue read through of the classic marvel excalibur series from the 80s and 90s centrally featuring nightcrawler if you want to hear me being kurt wagner's pr manager <laughs> on a weekly basis we've had a great response to that podcast so far we talk a lot about issues of representation and storytelling and how comics work and why the artist alan davis is amazing um you can find me on twitter at papard underscore anna most of my work gets linked there if you look me up on academia.edu you'll see a list of all my publications got a good one about uh called behold the vision's penis the presence of absence in mutant romance tales if you're interested in continuing the conversation about wanda and vision and lots of other great stuff in the pipeline too awesome thank you so very much we will uh i can't tell you uh how much fun those two podcasts are uh, subscribe to those um anna papart thank you so much for joining us today thanks so much nice to virtually meet you